E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Vines and wine culture have been a part of Hungary since at least Roman times. Hungary's climate can support a wide variety of grapes, and you'll find many styles from bold, rich reds to crisp, dry whites and lusciously sweet late harvest wines. Hungary's wine culture is rich and extremely historically important. It was one of the first places to create a land plot ranking system for the best vineyards, and the practice of regulating fine wines was serious business to Hungarian royalty, especially to Prince Rakosi, who in 1700 wanted to make sure he got the best stuff. The absolute best vineyards were in the category of chosen for the royal table. Goethe, who himself was a regular consumer of Tokai Azu, and who may have even written under its influence, got to the heart of the matter when he wrote, The rich want good wine, the poor plenty of wine. This idea of ranked land spread throughout Europe and eventually revolutionized the fine wine world in the early 1900s as the AOC system became standard, and then similar appellation controls became adopted by the EU. Our whole paradigm of thinking about terroir and wine quality can be traced to Hungary centuries ago. Ideas are powerful. Hungary's idea changed the world of wine. Daring ideas are like chessmen moved forward. They may be beaten, but they may start a winning game. Another Tokai-soaked quote from Goethe. But a different political idea changed Hungarian wine culture in the mid-1900s. After World War II, the very country who set the benchmark for Appalachian-driven wine quality switched to a communist economy, and all wine production became regulated by the state for decades. Bulk wines became the norm, and quality dropped. But ideas came to change things again, when in 1989, mass demonstrations of civil resistance led to social change, and Hungary broke apart their section of the Iron Curtain, which eventually led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. As Hungary formed a new wine economy based on capitalism, Slowly, Hungary's wine regions are re-clarifying and becoming more distinct. And over the last few decades, Tokai Azu in particular has reclaimed its status as one of the world's great dessert wines. 
After it was given as a gift to Louis XIV from the Prince of Transylvania, the wine became so esteemed in royal courts that eventually Louis XV called the wine the wine of kings and the king of wines. Composer Joseph Haydn drank it regularly, and Emperor Franz Joseph gifted it regularly. Tsar Peter the Great dispatched soldiers to bring him some regularly, and popes liked it too. Tokai Azu comes from the region of Tokai Hejala, an area that was once home to an underwater volcano, which makes the terroir particularly unique. Today, a river dispatches a mist throughout the region, and this combined with a long ripening season makes it perfect for botrytis grape production. Tokai Azu is made by hand harvesting individual berries that have botrytis and crushing them into a raisin paste and then adding the raisin paste to a base wine. The sweetness is measured in petonios, a reference to the baskets used for harvesting the raisins. More baskets of raisins in the base wine meant more sugar. And today, a higher petonio number means more sugar. The most prominent grape in Tokayazu is ferment. Like other great dessert wine grapes, it can keep a high level of sugar while also maintaining a really nice acidity. Ferment is likely the baby of Gouet Blanc, and Gouet Blanc is also the mama of Chardonnay making Ferment a likely sibling of Chardonnay. Tokai Azu is not easy to make. It's almost an impossibility, a rarity in itself. It makes up about 5% of Hungary's total wine production. But even in the category of Tokai Azu, there's an even rarer Tokai Essentia, the sweetest of the Tokai Azu, and the sweetest dessert wine in the world. It takes years to ferment, and it's almost impossible to produce. But if we look again to Goethe, I love those who yearn for the impossible. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, Winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Ben Halkins of the Royal Tokai Company in Hungary on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. 
Great to be here. You actually have a pretty long career in the wine spirits trade, and uh, how did things really get going? Well, quite a long time ago, in fact, a very long time ago, and I had left Amherst in Massachusetts, and I got back home, didn't have a clue what to do, and signed up to join the local brewery. And when I arrived as the management trainee, they said, uh, well, nice to see you, but um, we haven't got a place for you. So I thought, okay, but they said, we've got this thing called the wine department. Bear in mind, this is the 19th, early 60s. We've got this thing called the wine department. Of course, it'll never take off. But, you know, you can go and spend two or three months there and then come back and be a brewer. Well, I went and never came back. That's how it started. What was the 60s like in the British wine trade? Well, uh, there's a thing. It was a lot of fun. We were all similar background, similar profile. We joined the wine trade because we wanted to uh, have a bit of fun. We were being educated gradually. And it was an age of discovery. It was still very elitist, very public school background, if that makes any sense. Which is, for us, private school. Which is for you, private school, exactly. And there was a bit of education coming from the uh, Violence Education Association, but basically, we visited vineyards, learnt how to taste wine. Um, it was also the beginning of the Master of Wine exam. And that started because some five or six people thought that in the 60s and late 50s that many of the French producers were bamboozling the English wine trade and the English wine merchants wanted to fight back a bit. So they created this master wine exam really to learn more about wine themselves so they could actually negotiate better with the Baudelaire and the Burgundians. Like a trade negotiations, and you got to have your team ready. Yeah, exactly. It was just, there was a beginning of excitement about wine in the UK. There were a lot of wine merchants, wine shippers, who had been loyally bringing in uh, wines, different chateaus, different burgundy producers. But they didn't really understand what they should be negotiating about when they get a price or quality. So that's how they started it. And it's still going strong, Master of Wine. I, I vowed very early on never to become a Master of Wine. <laughs> <laughs> what was your decision-making there? Well, I decided that uh, I wanted to sell. I wanted to market wine. And from the beginning, as a precocious sort of 19-year-old, I found that it too much in theory and not enough commercial attitude to it, which I still think. I had a lot of friends who are Master of Wine. So don't get me wrong, but that's, that's what I felt, and I stuck to that. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how lovely a product is, if you can't get it to market, then nobody's going to be able to taste it. What were some of your first experiences on that side, like pursuing that? I started rolling barrels and putting on labels, and I have to say in the early 60s, some of the labels didn't necessarily correspond directly to the wine inside the bottle. Um, a lot of tankers from 
Algeria came in, stopped in Burgundy, and then came on. But, you know, what the hell? It was actually the quality of a lot of Burgundy those days was slightly fuller maybe than it might have been, but was very drinkable and enjoyable. So in those days, we were really, we were, we were on the shop floor, and we did things now that I don't think people joining the wine industry that is now the wine trade then would necessarily do. And um, so that was a bit of fun. And then I was very, very fortunate in that my boss put me in for the Vintner Scholarship. And that was something given annually by the Vintner's Company, one of the great delivery companies in, in London. We were awarded £300 and we could spend six months abroad with really a gold card for a fast track to all the great wineries in Europe. And I was definitely outside. I had come from the Hicks. I wasn't London-based. I'd come from Northampton. And um, we were having dinner together with the friend who got the bursary at number two. And he remembers he and I sitting there. And we were just wondering which uh, smart company, Harvey's, Bristol, or, or Christopher's, or Hatch Mansell were going get to the, get the prize. And I was very lucky to get it. And actually, that was quite interesting in terms of getting it because I'd just been to Amos, I said, and the master of the vendors was looking at sending his son to an American university. So we spent a good long time with the interview talking about the benefits of American education versus British education. And this went on for some time. And... Um, I was very happy talking about that, you know, not talking about wine, lovely. Kind of in your wheelhouse there. Yeah, and then a guy suddenly who was, a bit of, he was really asleep at the time, I think, and he suddenly woke up and thought he had to ask a question. So he asked me a question. I've always remembered how not to ask a question because he said, tell me, Hawkins, uh, do you know how the Solera system works in Jerez? Which, as you know, is quite a complicated process. So I sat back and put my hands on my lap and I said yes and he looked rather surprised but no more questions that was the only question I was asked about wine and did you know or about this well, I did know I mean I did know but it is quite a complicated process to describe in a short length of time so I could have answered it I was, I was being a, a bit bullshit really right 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 well, you know, trade negotiations, you know what I mean? That's it. You got to know when it. to bluff, right? That's right. That's right. So what did that entail for you, like getting that scholarship? Well, that was, that was a fascinating part because literally I could knock on the doors of Lafitte Latour in Bordeaux, of the, uh, the top champagne houses, then Crew very much was, was at the top there, and uh, Alsace, and we went, and I went to Port, and my first glimpse of the uh, Dura Valley. Jerez, which very few people go to now because of the demise of the sherry category, which I very much hope will be reinvigorated sooner rather than later. Um, and to Cognac and everywhere, really, that was producing wine, Germany, for about five and a half months. Fantastic start for a 20-year-old. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing, actually, when you think about it, to get to go to the first groves and the top. And then they, when I came back, they didn't punish me for that kind of that kind of work ethic for six months, but they sent me to the Midlands 
which is a kind of Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Northamptonshire, about 60, 80 miles north of London. And they put me to work as a salesman. And that was, looking back on it, quite interesting because I was then selling Portuguese table wine. That was our big seller called Justina. And trying to persuade these heavily masculine working men's clubs who all want to sit down and drink 10 pints of beer. And there was I standing up, banging on about wine. And most of the wine they'd had up to then were, was made from tea leaves or, or bark of a tree or rose petals or something. Like homemade stuff. Yeah, homemade stuff. I suddenly realized during a lecture once that I was I, the complete look of incomprehension on everybody's faces as I was banging on about wine making grapes and they suddenly realized that this was a different style of wine. And so I went, and so I did literally get on coal mines uh, in those days. And uh, quite a, it was quite, quite a change from the very uh, sophisticated five and a half months going around the uh, vineyards in, in uh, Europe as to being uh, chucked into the um, back end of a working men's club where you've got 15 or 20 miners sitting around a table and listening to you bang on about Portuguese wine. All they want to just buy is another sort of case of beer. So there we are. Because I think often we think of the British as, you know, with their clarets and their port and, you know. On well, a- yeah, I mean, this, I was then hiked back to London. It's a bit of sort of civilization. And, uh, and that was definitely, uh, again, an interesting time in the late 60s when restaurants were beginning to open up a bit apart from the classic restaurants that um, mainly French restaurants. At the time, the Rue brothers opened their classic Gavroche. It was a time when a lot of bistros opened with Czech tablecloths and the served bull's blood mainly. Um, which like was, Hungarian. Like Hungarian bull's blood, which is great because you, you could drink a bottle very cheaply and your girlfriend enjoyed drinking it as well. And away you go. So this was London in the 60s. I mean, heck, you know, you can't get much better than that. Um, there, there are a lot of characters. There, there are a lot of sort of um, wine trade characters. Uh, I then became one of the industry's first brand managers for some IDV spirits and wines. and Which is international distillers. International distillers right? then became Grand Met and the forerunner of Diageo, exactly. And... We bought a wine shipper called Brangor and Welsh. They shipped wonderful wines, Bouchard Pair amongst them. But they were really old-fashioned. And I was sent in to ask some simple questions like, you know, what's your forecast for the year? You say, well, it depends how much wine we've got to sell, um, which didn't really make much uh, sense when you were trying to put budgets together. And I soon realized that I had about three quarters of an hour in between the directors arriving in the morning at about 9, 9.30, before the first glass of sherry came in at about 10.30. And that was followed by more wine. And then lunch was always an occasion, and one used to play a, a, a dice game after that. And um, I remember one buyer for a supermarket, they just started, and he wanted to buy 400 cases of Bulls Advocar. Uh, which was big in those days. And 
You couldn't find anybody to give the order to because people were still playing dice. They so just walked out. <laughs> True. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it really happened. Yeah. But you must have met some people who worked pretty hard and were successful as well. The great thing about IDV was that the marketing director was George Bull, who then became Sir George Bull and became chairman of Grand Met. And he was the most wonderful person who decided to bring brand management and disciplines into the what was then a kind of elitist wine trade. And he was the person, really, who put budgets together. And all the money that then we were making out of selling JMB to the U.S., they put back into new product development. And one of those new products was Bailey's Irish Cream. And I remember that was launched in 74. And I remember then by that stage, I was export manager for Croft Port. And, and I remember crisscrossing with David Dan, who was the MD of Bailey's Irish Cream. And we kept meeting each other. And I was doing okay with my Croft Port. He was tearing his hair out. He could not find anybody, any distributor in the US to take on Bailey's Irish Cream. They just... Hubeline just launched uh, Hereford Cows at under $5 a bottle. Which was something similar. like having... Something similar. Sort of cow's milk with alcohol, I guess. I'm not sure what it was. Anyway, it didn't last very long. And But David wanted $8 a bottle for Bailey's. And I said, well, I've just been to see Austin Nichols, a uh, great guy there called Ken Bray. And said, I've seen Ken, and he's not very keen. So I said, well, you know. So he went back to Ken Bray, and Ken said, David, okay, you've seen me three times now in six months. Okay, I'll give it a go. And this was probably in the springtime. He said, um, okay, I'll give it a go. And I'll, I'll give a forecast for 9,000 cases for this year. And they ended up shipping, I think, I think 80,000 cases year one. The rest is history. But it just shows that you think things automatically are going to be successful from word go. And boy, sometimes it takes a, a huge leap of faith to actually make things happen. So Croft Port, I mean, how did that come about for you? Why did you get into the fortified world? I was at one stage in 1970, having had two years of brand manager, I was given the choice of four different jobs internally within IDV. And the one that I liked best was the one of Croft Port. I've had an immediate empathy with the Dura Valley. I love the history. And I thought, let's give it a go. That must have been a kind of changing time for both Britain and the fortified market, right? Well, I think at that time, I remember working out Gallo were producing more domestic California labeled port than was coming out of the whole of the Dura Valley. So that was going on here. What was going on in the port world was that bottling at origin had just started and it became law in the early 70s in Portugal. It hadn't happened before, partly because there weren't the bottling lines in the place of origin, partly they didn't have the technology to actually bottle as well as the uh, English wine merchants were able to bottle. But it soon became clear it was good for the country of origin because it provided more economic benefits there and also it was a more guarantee of the product itself. 
Because so that was one of the first things we had to do was to switch from shipping in bulk. It used to be that they shipped port barrels to Absolutely. destinations, and Absolutely. at the destination they bottled it. Uh, yep. But what you saw was that probably infrastructure was changing, and roads were getting better, and electricity was coming in, and they could actually bottle it there. And they could bottle it there, and basically all the countries of origin were encouraged to, to do it because it provided economic benefit. So again, the corollary of that was that in the old days, you shipped port or sherry into the traditional markets, basically Europe. And then, of course, the wine merchant would put on their own label. So we really had a, had a can a lot of labels. Um, and the people who were doing it well was the Savoy Group, uh, Savoy Hotel Group, uh, Berry Brothers, uh, pe- people like that. So we weaned them off that, and then we all came across with our own names. So that was the very first kind of international brand development that was taking place. It changed everything, and of course now it seems so obvious, but then it wasn't. And you waited for, uh, particularly in port, you waited for your customer to send back a sample of the port that he had liked from you or from whichever other person he was buying from. He said, can you match this? Actually, it's quite a funny story, though, that um, I think it was in Denmark. It could have been Norway. And the lovely wine merchant said, please, um, this sample, which we really enjoyed, got lots of body in it. We really want to match it. And they actually realized that, I mean, it might be apocryphal, but it might not. But they realized that um, the vat from which, the original vat from which the, the port was drawn, um, a workman had actually fallen in and, and they couldn't get him out. <laughs> so it sure had extra body in it. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Sorry, that, was, that caught me by surprise. I wasn't expecting you to say that. I feel bad for that guy. Because, I mean, now we complain that there's too many labels on the shelves of retail stores, but what you're describing is a whole different era where there you know, weren't all these domain-bottled wines. That, that is so true. Um, we had, the, particularly Europe, the European wine lake, a lot of overproduction, the various... Uh, cooperatives used to buy it in and so little by little the consumer was able to to understand in simple terms what he was drinking say you had well-known wine producers now i mentioned a couple and you as a consumer could buy on a regular basis and then of course you got people in the countries of supply of origin saying, hey, hold on, I can, I, I can do a bit better than selling my wine in bulk to the local cooperative. I can bottle it myself, make some added value monies and whatever. So now you've got, a, you've got almost a disproportionate amount of, of, of labels available to the liquid that actually deserves to go into them. And you can box clever and put on a different label for the different trade circuit, uh, um, supermarkets against private um, independent companies. I think it's, I mean, it's good in one way, but it, it makes it quite complicated. I think it's getting almost a saturation point with the number of labels now. And how did you end up working at, for Lord Rothschild? Where, where did that come and go? Originally, um, I'd left Taylor's uh, uh, port and I was um, consulting and not quite sure what to do. And so somebody said, well, why don't you go and apply as a drinks analyst for a merchant bank? Um, but that merchant bank sadly went under. And they didn't make the appointment, but 
they somebody suggested, why did I write to a few other similar banks? I wrote to Jacob Rothschild. And of course, he doesn't have a bank. And I called him Mr. Rothschild. He's Lord Rothschild. So I, did, I came in the wrong door and I did everything wrong. And after five interviews, he said he'd like to hire me uh, because he'd just taken on the responsibility of Wasdom Manor, which is one of the great stately homes of England, uh, one of 50 built by the Rothschilds in the uh, late 19th century, full of wonderful furniture and paintings, um, probably the, the most valuable French furniture outside Versailles. And he wanted to, he loves wine, and wanted to really to create a, a wine cellar at Wadsdor Manor as a mecca for the Rothschild wine. So we did that, and um, we brought in Mouton. So it's probably got the largest collection of the feet in Mouton anywhere combined. So you were in charge of the cellar? Yes, we, we built the cellar from nothing. We, we uh, ended up with 15,000 bottles. All his privately owned wines. He's a great wine collector. And we put them all together and we binned them in the same uh, way as Buckingham Palace had binned their wines for ages because I used to sit on the, the Royal Household Wine Committee. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. Yeah, we, what was that like? I, I was on there about 21 years. And the uh, fascinating because we basically chose the wines for the five different palaces in the UK. We used to meet and we used to have our AGMs in Buckingham Palace, that wonderful room where everybody comes out and overlooks the balcony. We're going and just pulling cyber and the magical net curtains and everybody saying, gosh, who's that person up there? And it was me. Um, so I slunk away. But um, Her Majesty was very um, clear that she, she liked German wine, I think mainly because of her ancestor, Prince Albert, and didn't really like French white wine. And this is a, a, a trying moment for the committee because we knew there were some great white vergnies out there, but we couldn't get them into the palaces. And then one moment, the master of the royal household came down and played it very theatrically, Sir Simon Cooper, and he said, gentlemen, I have great news to bring. I've just had an audience of the monarch, with the monarch, of the monarch, and she has graciously acknowledged the fact that a wine committee, if they so wish, may choose wine, white wines other than from Germany. So that was, that was a real big change there. So now white burgundy is now available at Buckingham Palace. Was that because the kids were becoming of drinking age, like Charles, maybe like the little French wine? Well, I think there was, there was some element of that, but basically it was, she was finally persuaded. that She'd had French wine once, on the Royal Yacht Britannia outside Australia. It was a shabby. She didn't like it. So for the next 20 years, that was it. Because it seems like a big deal, like when you get the emblem of HRH and stuff like that. It is. It is. And it is uh, something which is very much prized. It's something which is held by the individual, not by the company. And you have to have supplied the wines on a, on a regular basis. And we, we looked at all, all different things, including royal warrants. Very few new royal warrants for wine merchants have been granted in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe some in the future, I don't know. There was one classic time when the Duke of Edinburgh realized that a lot of champagne companies had been awarded the royal warrant. And... 
he jokingly, as Duke of Edinburgh will sometimes do, uh, said, gosh, they must be a lot of drunkards, the French. And that was taken up by, I think, the French ambassador who was... Um, who, who decided that that might become a diplomatic incident. And so the Duke backed down that uh, no royal warrants have been issued to the, to the champagne makers. But I guess, you know, if you're on that committee and, and uh, you do a good job at, like, blind tasting a few times, you could be knighted or something. I mean, you know. Well, not, not knighted, but said the clerk will, will get an honor, a, a private honor from the Queen. Absolutely, absolutely. But no, you're absolutely right in, in, in one aspect, is that, is that all the wines are tasted completely blind. And you give your marks in at the end of each tasting. Usually, there was much greater consensus amongst the quality wines. There's much less consensus amongst the so everyday wines that were given to diplomats and that sort of thing. Oh, I see. So, what are those wines from the Loire, classically? No, but now wines from uh, Chile coming in, uh, Argentina, Australian. So. There's a much more, much more, um, a much wider sort of selection there. I feel like even an empty bottle that the Queen drank would have a lot of value. Like just, you know. Well, it's, it's something which is quite complicated uh, when you're dealing at that level. There's sort of two stories. One is that um, some people say that if you're the Queen of England and you're entertaining the President of the United States, then you should offer a first growth. But if you offer a first growth, then... The newspaper will pick up that Her Majesty has been offering the first growth, and is, is this the correct way to spend money, and all that sort of thing. There, so it's a very, very finite balance to, you know, to get right there. And then there's the other fun element of making sure you give the visiting statesman the correct wine. And President Xi from China was visiting, I think, last year, and he wanted better wine than his predecessor had enjoyed 10 years earlier so they checked back and it was a second growth and so they thought they must give him a first growth and so he was but equally he was the person in his previous life who had just cut down on all the excess expenditure amongst the officials in Beijing so he was offered a a, a good first growth with the figure 80 in it never was happy I guess if it's on the British it's okay you know you must see some interest now for uh, English sparkling wine for the royal households. That is that is absolutely right. And I'm, I'm really pleased the English wine producers have moved in that direction because when I was as chairman of the Wine Promotion Board trying to promote all wines from all over the world, a lot of the English wines weren't that interesting. They were The grape varieties weren't that right, good, and mostly white. But now to move to sparkling wine, it's really exciting. So the difficulty is getting the price right because uh, they're pretty much on a par with champagne now. So it was Lord Rothschild that kind of set you up in Hungary, right? Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. A man with amazing vision and amazing address book. And he asked me to go out to Hungary to, to my vineyard because his aunt, great aunt, uh, had uh, been Hungarian. And it was just opening up and he thought... Wouldn't it be nice to, my cousins have got nice chateaus in Bordeaux. Well, fine if I had a nice chateau in, in, in Tokai. Uh, the wall had just come down. Everything was, was changing. And so I went out there with Charles Chevalier, who was then 
winemaker at Chateau Riasek before he became winemaker at Lafitte. And so he and I went out. We were looking in the wrong place, really, too far north in Tokai. He came back, reported back to Eric Rothschild, saying, not for us, really, because we've already got Chateau Riasek, which is fantastic. And I came back thinking that this is, my eyes have been opened at this amazing uh, region, the sort of size of Burgundy with topographically the same hills. And what really struck me was when I tasted 30 different Azu wines from 30 different barrels, my mouth had a completely clean taste after tasting 30 wines from barrel. Well, I know of no other region where you can do that. So I came back and, and, and expressed interest. And then a friend of mine, David Orr, who then was, I think he just, he'd been president of, of Chateau Latour and then took over Rosal Segley. He said, well, don't you know that Hugh Johnson has really just started this joint venture and his uh, financiers had gone away and therefore left with a lot of wine in barrel, but not sure what to do. So, Oh, because it was like recessionary times. Yeah, it was, exa- it was the early 90s. Uh, the 90s, early 90s recession took a lot of people out and by surprise. And, you know, so made contact with Hugh. And we then, the three friends, raised the money in London. Jacob Rothschild was very keen to support us there. And we therefore bought the 60 original farmers out of the joint venture and because each of them brought in a hectare to the party and that's why we're the only Tokai company that's got different single first growth vineyards and then we started and that really was what pioneering in Hungary that was extraordinary we were the very first people to invest in the Tokai region after it had been pretty much decimated by 40 years of misrule. What were some of the first things that were incredibly important when you got there? Well, language, of course, um, was a huge barrier because it is like no other language, not even close to Finnish, really. And then mindset of people who hadn't really experienced uh, anything like a free market. All the... All the Tokai then had been produced by the state, sold under state labels, and 90% of it had been to Russia in return for tractors coming back to help the agriculture in Hungary. In fact, the tracks didn't actually work in the vineyards, it was neither here nor there. So the actual region got no benefit at all from selling its wines. So all that was there. And, and uh, we just, uh, with Peter Vinding Dears, we. Um, I used to buy uh, bottles of uh, Tenia Tawny Port at Heathrow Airport. He used to bring in cigars from uh, Bordeaux, and we used to sit in the evening and chat, seeing how the hell are we going to make this work? And it really was like that. And we, I think one of those exciting things was that genuinely we could create our own international pricing because the only pricing really that I could find in those days was Bay Brothers, uh, in London, and I wandered in there and saw that they were selling the five Petronius at fifteen pounds a bottle, uh, half litre. And so I thought, right, if that's the market price, that's the kind of market price. So that's what we used really, because there was no other benchmark, like starting a champagne business with no champagne price. Where do you start? And uh, as I often say, 
arriving there was rather like arriving in the Napa Valley and finding that there were no signposts to vineyards in practical terms. Nobody knew what the vineyards were. There were no companies there. All the, if you think of Napa or Burgundy or any other wine region and try and blank out all the names you know, that's exactly what it was. So all the names that we now know around the world in Tokai, all names post-1990. That's amazing because it's basically one of the world's oldest wines, if not it the is, oldest. It is. Um, I have fun with my port friends because 1756 is kind of the oldest demarcated region uh, in the Dura Valley, but probably by 1700, certainly later than 1737, and starting earlier, it was the first classified wine region in that the Prince Rakoxy, who owned that part of Transylvania, figured there were 28 villages that were producing wines at a higher level than the other nearby villages. So that became the demarcated area. So it was a tragedy that this wonderful region should have been totally shunned from the world. So not only was it behind the Iron Curtain so you couldn't purchase it, but it was also decimated on the production side, really, for quality production. It really was. They were, they, all the farmers were encouraged to produce more volume because by producing more volume of Azu wines, and the Russians like their wines uh, slightly darker, slightly less fresher, less vibrant. They tend to keep the wines in the barrels for longer without topping them up. Uh, so they got more madderized and that sort of thing there. And that's what they liked. So if you've got one customer and that's how the customer likes it, then that's what you give the customer. You know, the, the idea of quality control just disappeared. But Isvan Sepsi, wonderful man who became our first general manager, uh, and then Samuel Tino was our second general manager. And um, Isvan had, uh, with other people, but not such a high-profile person as Isvan Sepsi, had been producing these wines cleaner, more vibrant, fresher, more color in them, um, less oxidized, and uh, but really under underneath the radar. And so he was very much producing his wines for his family, for friends, for a few restaurants. But had had he not had he not continued to do that, when Hugh Johnson first went there, he would not have tasted the wines that were had made Tokai famous all those years ago, because all the wines produced in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were all a bit bland, a bit plain, and not really exciting. So what was Budapest like at that time? The business to be in would have been the paint business because uh, there's that wonderful ochre, yellow ochre that characterizes so many lovely, majestic Budapest buildings was just um, was just uh, not there. There was it's more like Vienna was before it all got cleaned up, and Budapest, of course, used to be called the Paris of the East, but it was um, heavy buildings, um, not a lot going on, a lot of old cars, dirty, polluted, and then gradually, well, actually, quite quite quickly, but gradually over time until now, where it's a wonderful city to go to. Lots to offer. Um, great galleries, great museums. You've got this great thing called Ruin Pubs, 
spaces in the center of Budapest, which either houses or blocks have been knocked down and not everything's been rebuilt. You get these wonderful ruined pubs, which basically you can eat and drink all night and uh, a lot of fun. Where is Tokai in relation to Budapest? It's northeast. So now it's about two hours, two and a quarter hours, which used to take three hours to four hours up there. So you know, I really can get out of the airport, rent a car, and go straight to Tokai. And that's what, that's what the region needed. It needed access, because where it is, northeast of the country, got Ukraine about 50 kilometers away, and Slovakia and all those places there. So it, was, it wasn't a kind of area we'd go through. There's nobody really went beyond Tokai. So we had to make it more of a destination place there. And what's the topography like of the area for Tokai, the region? You've got um, three or four main towns. You've got the town of Tokai. You've got the town of Tarsal, the town of Mad. Those are three main ones there. And of course, Tokai is where the two rivers meet. And that, that is crucial because the Tisa and the Bodrog meet in Tokai. And as the Bodrog is, is the cooler river and the Tisa is the warmer river, it throws up the mist round about this time of the year in September, October, and that mist carries the botrytis around the Tokai Hills, one hill of 1,500 feet, and it carries the mist round that to the main vineyards around that area there. And they are known as the Cote d'Or vineyards around there. That's actually the terminology that's that, used. That is the terminology that is used. And the soil is mainly volcanic, more towards Tarsal, it's more loess soil, more sandy soil being blown across the Great Plain. The Great Plain is, is, is extraordinary in itself because it's just there's nothing happening there. So you've got, you've really got a sort of oasis of the Tokai vineyards because you've got almost between Tokai and Budapest, you've got the Eger, where the bull's blood, formerly bull's blood wines were made, uh, now producing great wines again. Turned to home for you in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's true. There's wonderful restaurants at Beach and Place in London that oozed out the bull's blood. Yep. Over time, you must have gotten a sense of where those historical vineyards were in the Tokai region, right? You probably uncovered some documents. Or... Yes, we can trace back the Meshes Mai vineyard, the great first growth vineyard, to about 1512, something like that. And what's been interesting is seeing the ownership of these vineyards owned by popes, owned by archbishops, owned by princes. And so the ownership of the vineyards were not broken down so much into individual vineyards themselves. They used to take a side of a hill upon which were so many first-growth vineyards, and you're a first-growth vineyard because, think about it, nothing really changes and the sun comes down, uh, you're facing southeast or southwest, the soil is the same over over the centuries. So what changes is 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 the actual the actual vine and how it's harvested. So therefore, no single vineyards. Um, we've got with Royal Tokai, we've got Meshes Mai, Nulazo, Betsek, Santomash, and a second growth, which is the Belshamas. Those so, are the name of vineyards. Yes, those are the name of the vineyards. And they were never vinified separately. So we're the first people ever to vinify 
and bottle separately a first growth vineyard. And we didn't know whether there would be a huge difference whether the Azu berries would have as much difference as an ordinary grape, if you like. So when it's shriveled with botrytis, does it still reflect terroir is the question? Exactly, exactly. And we found that they did. And our first vintage was 1990. And then, of course, it, it is, in Tokai, it is still probably the most difficult business model of all time in any vineyard anywhere. Because not only do you have the three different grapes, um, the, the ferment, the harsh flu, and the muscat, but you also have this, you, you have this sort of totally unknown factor of whether in any particular year the botrytis is going to develop and you can actually make your, your main uh, wine, which is the Azu wines from the berries. So, um, and you have to pick them separately, go through vineyards many times. So it's a very complicated process. Is climate change affecting that? Like, are you seeing drier years more recently? Climate change has to affect the Tokai wine region as it affects every other wine region. But they don't march necessarily together. There was a really hot year, as 2003 was in, in, in France. Then our wines in 2003 were slightly had a, a slightly extra sunshine material, but, but not so outstandingly different uh, as in other areas. So I think it will, but I think there are other factors that are playing much more important part. Were those always the three historical grape varieties, or has that shifted over time? Well, if you go back into the Tokai Museum, there were many more grape varieties earlier on, rather like in the Dura Valley, and they've come now really to these three and the prime mover is the ferment. And although it is grown in other regions, very little is really uh, grown outside Tokai, which is kind of nice to have our own individual grape variety there. And is it prized for acidity or for other? It's really prized for acidity. And without the acidity of the ferment grape, you would not be able to produce the, the azu wines that we are proud of. Which uh, is which, the sweet wines. Which are the sweet wines. And... Because of the acidity, they've got very, almost double the acidity in the Tokaizu wines as most Sotern have. And in fact, when I try the Royal Tokai wines, sometimes what strikes me about the Azu wines is that they finish pretty dry. Well, that, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I've been labeled slightly with my port connections and my Tokai involvement as liking sweet wines. I don't actually like sweet wines. I mean, I don't, I, I used to dread the time when at the end of a formal dinner, you used to get given a tiny little glass of sweet wine because usually it did not have the acidity. And I felt you could not drink anything afterwards. So you had your little glass of sweet wine, then you didn't feel like anything afterwards. One of the great joys of the, of the Azu wines, as you say, is that that kind of dryness at the end. So if people who don't like sweet wines, they'll still enjoy this because you just see their eyes lighting up. And the part that's always been a little unclear for me is how Azu wines are actually made, because it seems a little different than Sauternes. Yes, and each producer probably creates them slightly differently. But what happens, I was going to say in essence, but okay, I'll oh, say. Oh yeah, that's funny. I'll say. But I'll, boom, tip your waitresses. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say in essence is that you, each producer picks um, grapes, white 
grapes and produces dry white wine. And then at some stage in that process, the azu berries, i.e. the wines that have been raisined, dried out, will have been collected, stored, and then at appropriate moments will be merged together. And so once you merge them together, in a, a kind of ratio of a fibrotonous wine, for instance, will have roughly 50% dry grapes and 50% azu berries there. And then those are, are blended together and left for two years minimum. In our, our cellars go back to the 14th century. And so they're all stored there for at least two years, probably three years. Um, and then what happens when the azu berries are sitting in, in our open stainless steel tanks, the juice of the berries sitting on top of each other will just slowly coagulate out. And that, when you collect it, is the essence of the grape. We call it essentia. That was the, the wine that was enjoyed by all the royal courts of Europe, by the Tsars of Russia, by the kings of Poland. So if, they, if you were being invited to have dinner with the king of Poland, then uh, you would be given the Tokai Essentia to toast. So it's like the free-run juice of Petritus Berries. free-run juice, and we need about 40 pounds worth of 40 pounds weight to go into one half bottle. It's extraordinary. It was originally thought to be a health restorative, which of course it is. Um, it will never get to more than 2 or 3% alcohol because the yeast just simply can't convert all that sugar. So how many producers are there in the region these days for making Azu wines, Essencia? I mean, how many different producers are there? Well, you went from one pre-1990, which was a state uh, winery. Uh, you went from one pretty much to about four or five who invested in the region, of which we were obviously one or the first. Then you had various uh, Hungarians coming back to their own country. They didn't reclaim lands, but they came back and set up their own wineries. So that was getting to about 10 or 12. Then you had individual farmers who, instead of selling their wine or their grapes to the state cooperative, decided to make their own wines. And some sold locally, some sold nationally in Hungary, and if you exported. So it's from being a totally unnatural one label category, it is now probably 30, 40 different labels. And then you have the dry wine. And it's the dry wines, the dry ferments particularly, the harsh blue as well, and muscat, that we are really, all of us are realizing that we, we need volumes to, to really keep the lights on, make the region work, because you've got you know, 4,500 uh, hectares or whatever it is, and you've got a lot of people out there. So in order to make sure that they're earning money, is that we, as a, as a region just hope that consumers all around the world can begin to appreciate what the ferment grape can give them. Because there, there was, as you explained, a tradition of making dry wine, but then combined with sweet wine. And so was there always white wine by itself available, or was that a new thing? Yeah, I think it, uh, I mean, yes, there was. As the Hungarians will say that they've been producing wine for 
600 years that had only been famous for 400 years. So that kind of shows that 200 years before the um, mid-17th century, they weren't producing dry white wine. I mean, that paints it as kind of second class, but I mean, that, the wine seemed pretty interesting to me. I think, again, you have to remember that you've been through two generations of wine uh, makers that did not understand the international market, could only understand the local market, weren't, weren't given any incentives, any, any encouragement to produce quality wine. And so you had to really go back to scratch. And so what we are all producing now is um, heaps better than it was 20, 30 years ago. And that will continue to just increase in quality. It's a big category for you, the dry wine? It's becoming bigger. It is quite bigger because we can produce that every year. And we can produce late harvest every year. The one that keeps sort of escaping is producing Azu every year. I mean, we had a great 2013, which we've just been bottling this year. Uh, nothing in 12, 11, 10. So the last, as it were, the red label uh, Azu to come on the market is 2009. So that's a big gap. So when we have a great Azu harvest, then we will will tend to produce buy-in azu berries and, and produce for our own vineyards two or three times as much as we allow ourselves to sell annually. Because it would seem to me like you could drink the the dry white wine younger than the azu, although yes, it, I, we tried a 13 together of the oddity, which is the dry white wine. So is that the current release or is that? That's the current release. Uh, 14 was small and we kept that out of the US. So the next release will be the 2015. It needs a bit of bottle age, or it definitely improves with a bit of bottle age. Um, so what, what's it like, you know? What's a ferment like? Well, uh, it, it's got the sort of strength of Chardonnay. It's got, it's got the appeal of Sauvignonier. Um, and it's got the acidity of the Chenin Blanc grape, kind of. And so then, if that's the case, how does the late harvest bottling fit into that spectrum? Well, late harvest, in a way, it's a, it's a simpler style. Uh, it's less intense. So that doesn't need that amount of bottle age. So you can produce that one year and can drink that the following 12 months. And what have been some of the standout years for the Azu wines? I mean, if you were to look back and say like, oh, wait, you know, the Botrytis really happened that year. We're really happy with that one. Because, it, you know, it's not a vintage chart that a lot of Americans are familiar with. So what no. have been the, you know? It's not. I mean, I compile, I helped to compile it with the International Wine Food Society, but it is, it's, it's kind of on the back page. Um, the 93, the 1993 was, was, was our first great vintage. The 1999 was our first great clearly botrytis vintage 2000 was an equally great wine little botrytis but fantastic sun but will not last as long as the 1999 uh 2003 great um the 07 and 08 really great years and i think the 13 which literally is being bottled right now at least as far as we're concerned could be the greatest Tokai vintage ever or ever in a free market style. Is that based on potential longevity or what? Yes, it is. It's based on, and, and I remember tasting the wines not so long ago, our own wines from the cask, and being completely not surprised or amazed, but just delighted the way that the vintage turned out. Huge power, 
wonderful um, vibrancy, great fruit, and you could just tell that it's going to last a long time. But ironically, you can actually enjoy these wines young as well as waiting for a very long time for them to mature. So if you were tasting from cask, how would you identify the Royal Tokai signature? I mean, what's different from you than the other 30, 35, 40 wineries out there now? What we've always done is to make sure that the uh, finished Azu blend is as uh, contains as broad a spectrum of tastes and styles within those tastes as, as possible. We tend not to produce a more floral, one-dimensional style, which is more uh, akin maybe to some Sauterne wines. We want to make very clear wines that are seen to be coming from the Tokai wine region, seem to have that Tokai terroir. So I think the generosity of fruit is one, but also that absolute clear um, sort of line of acidity. And where has the market gone? I mean, I feel um, in terms of the market consumption, you've worked some tough categories, a little bit of involvement in sherry, you worked in port, and now it's Tokai. It's like you, you never picked an easy life for yourself, but... Uh, no, that is true. My children will say, because I'm wanting to write a book on sherry, my children will say, well, Dad, why do you keep writing about wines that are so difficult to, to drink? Um, I did not set out to, to do To that. ruin your children's lives, yeah, yeah. I, I wrote the books on port because I really genuinely fell in love with that industry and the people and the Duro. I wrote the book on Tokai because... At that stage, there was no book, however small my monograph is, there was no book on, on Tokai, so to set the scene more. And the book on Sherry I want to do, which is um, not yet commissioned, but you'll be the first to know when it is, I, I really want to, again, convey what wonderful wines are coming out of that region, which has suffered hugely in terms of loss of popularity. So yeah, I could have chosen Easy Life, I suppose, producing one grape style in some wonderful flat countryside, but I, I haven't done that. Ben Hawkins of the Royal Tokai Company knows how hard it is to make the match between the consumer, the market, and the wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Ben Hawkins of the Royal Tokai Company in Hungary. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I said, Steve, what are you doing? Well, he said, I've got this, um, I've got this wine tasting going on. We hadn't talked about it at all uh, all weekend. He said, I've got this wine tasting going on. I said, oh, yeah, who, who between? He said, well, I've got this sort of California wines coming in. And, uh, um, I mean, nobody is more pro-French than Stephen. And, but, you know, the French 
can be a little bit arrogant sometimes about their own wines and seems well just as a kind of you know not a joke but a kind of um uh, exercise because he's a terrific visionary Stephen and uh he said I've got this competition going on and I've got some people coming in I said well, great have fun and off I went and that was that never thought about it again and then of course that was the judgment of Paris and uh and the rest is history <laughs>